The upcoming presentation is a two-man power trip of wrestling podcast production. John Paz, and with me as always is the star of the show, former WWE Tag Team Champion, eight-time Smoky Mountain Wrestling Tag Team Champion, as well as one of the greatest trainers in the history of professional wrestling. He is the Doctor of Desire, Tom Pritchard. Tom, how are you today? Well, considering all the tragedy and strife going around the world, I'm doing pretty good. I can't complain. Knoxville, Tennessee is treating me uh, not too bad today. Now we have a special guest on the line, Dr. Tom. I don't know if you want to do a Heavenly Bodies-esque intro for um, the legend himself, but I'll let you kind of introduce him. Uh, yeah, well, I'm not so sure Heavenly Body intro would, would work so well for this gentleman, but i got to tell you, he is one of the greatest, if not the greatest. I know he'll argue with me and tell me Bobby Heenan is the greatest, but definitely in the top five greatest managers of all time, the manager of champions, a future Hall of Famer, certainly to be in sooner than later, I give you James E. Cornette. Dr. Tom, thank you for having me on the program. I, I wish, though, that instead of that intro, you'd, you would have given me the the sing-song intro that, that John P. gave you, because, I mean, you were almost singing it, John. It was so melodic. <laughs> it was like, he is the doctor of desire, and it, it sounded like a Broadway musical. I don't know what kind of drugs you're on here but uh but dr tom i appreciate the opportunity to emote here on your broadcast tonight because you and i are probably going to be the only ones that survive this thing you and i've been practicing social distancing for years now <laughs> this is true this is true this is nothing new to me this is something i've been looking for for I don't know, last uh, at least 55 years I can remember. So, yeah. Well, actually, Lance Storm just tweeted here a day or so ago. He said, well, I, I work out in my basement. I play with my dogs. I go on walks by myself, and I read books. He said, this is kind of like the life I dreamed of when I buy lottery tickets. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah, just w- with, without the money. So, there we go. Yeah, well, especially without the money over the past couple of weeks. Yeah, the, the money is gone, but at least we have the, 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 the time. And the, the you know effort to put into our our homes and 
introspection, coming within ourselves to look deeply at ourselves. Whoa, 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 coming within ourselves. But anyway, yeah, okay. Well, well, that is good. Thank you for coming on where you can emote like this because uh, I've been coming within myself for a long time now. So, <laughs> and, yeah. I, I don't want to. I don't want to start the program off on a sour note, you know. But I, I've got to make mention of this. I think is it mere coincidence? I think not. That just a mere two or three weeks after I announced my retirement from professional wrestling, every wrestling promotion in the world shut down. Coincidence, I think not. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I don't think so either. You're a very good, very good point. I hate that people can't bear to go on without me, but they didn't need to go to this length. Well, now, now, Dr. Tom, I'm just kind of curious, and obviously you too, Mr. Cornette, when did you guys kind of first connect? Because you obviously have great rapport and great connection, but all the way back in the 80s, when did you guys kind of first connect? When, when were we first connected, Doc? It was uh, briefly I, I, in Memphis, wasn't it? Yeah, Memphis, uh, I remember I came in, and, and that was at um, uh, the early the early 80s to me was like uh, the beginning of this long storm, and I was out at sea for about 30 years, and you know, when you're out at sea, you have these ups and downs and these these uh, uh, good days and bad days. The waves are higher some days, and they just wipe you out, and other days, it's kind of a calm, calm uh, ocean, but, but I remember in Memphis, uh, right before you guys went to Mid-South, uh, in fact, I remember the night that Bill Watts came in and was looking everybody over in the Mid-South Coliseum in Memphis, and uh, that had to have been, was it 80, 82 or 83? It, it was 83, and actually I met you and your, your lovely and talented brother Bruce within months of each other because it was the fall of 83. You came into Memphis, uh, me and a bunch of the guys that, that had just come back from that that little summer vacation in Georgia where we, we ran a promotion virtually in front of no people. It was the closest thing to outlaw wrestling I've ever done. Mm. Uh, when, when Jarrett sent the, you know, the motley crew of us down to work the Georgia circuit for Ole while his stars made the northern tours. And that lasted seven glorious weeks. And then they, they integrated us back into the Memphis programming, and you had just gotten there. So we got, you know, but you were a baby face, and we were heels, and I was on the buttermilk run, so we never actually got really to work together. But we, you know, met and, and uh, instantly hit it off. We were connected, as, the, as John just said. And then uh, we, me and Bobby and Dennis and a bunch of us, went down to work for Watts in December of 83, and that's where I met. Bruce, because he was still in Houston, having not become like yourself an international superstar at that time. Well, I'm sure that was a barrel of fun, too. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Good <laughs> So, But within, within a, a span of a few months, I was, I was acquainted with both the Pritchard boys. It was, like when, it was like meeting the Funk brothers, both at the same time. It was so overwhelming. <laughs> All right. Yeah, nothing like the Funk Brothers, but there you go. Anyway. But, but we we really we never spent any time together in the same place until Smoky Mountain. Uh, you know, really of any significance. Right, right. I I think it was one of those things too. Um, you know, given my personality, especially back then, I holds it holds true today. I've just come to find out I am this. This is the cloth I'm cut from, and there's no change in it. And uh, I was uh, very much 
uh, some people are in this business a loner, but, but, you know, I, I got everybody's personality. I think I just, uh, at that time I wasn't very engaging. And then all of a sudden, uh, uh, I don't think you could, you, you could, I don't believe that you could be not engaging when you're getting around guys like Stan Lane or Ricky Morton, Robert Gibson and that kind of crew. And, uh, when when I first got through, the Fabs were on fire and rock and roll was just starting, and, and Dundee and Lawler had just had their loser league town match with the baby faces and the heels sitting on opposite sides at ringside, you know, on the front row. That was that was mind blowing. But uh, uh, you know, it, yeah, I, I, we never really had a chance because you were just starting out too, I believe, and 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 getting your confidence and and uh, figuring out what you wanted to do. So you're right, it probably. More than you're right, probably it, it, it most likely was Smoky Mountain Wrestling. And, well, yeah, well, uh, we we were we were two ships that that passed in the night there in in Memphis. But I I enam I was enamored of you from afar because everybody knew I used to get all the tapes of all the territories, right? Right. No matter where I was at, and for a, a brief time in '85, when they headquartered us in Atlanta, when Crockett had absorbed the the Georgia office. They they ribbed us. They said, well, we'll keep you in the rock and roll apart for six months. Uh, they're moving to Charlotte. You move to Atlanta, and we'll, you know, work you all apart, right, <laughs> which lasted for ten weeks. And then they said, no, nah, fuck that. Just come to Charlotte. So we'd already got apartments and shit. But anyway, um, that was where we got a chance to work Macon on Saturday night, or Columbus, Georgia, I'm sorry, on Saturday night, which was like 80 miles from our apartment. So I would be back. On a Saturday night, for the first time ever in wrestling, I'd be back in my house at like quarter to 12. Hmm. And Joe Petticino had the superstars of wrestling block, which was pretty much the best six territories uh, from 8 o'clock until 2 in the morning. And, of course, we'd had the TBS show, and I had my VCR set. So I would I would sit up until 9 o'clock in the morning on fucking Sunday and watch all the wrestling every week. Anyway... You were working in Continental, and you were just starting to do the, the the top heel thing and blah, 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 and I became a fan of yours from afar. And when Dennis had left, we've told the story before, but Dusty came to, to me and Bobby and said, what are we going to do? <laughs> I said, well, I don't fucking know. <clears throat> but, I, you know, he asked, uh, you know, who we might get, and I thought of you because you were you were a single at that time. But I thought you would you would be able to work the style and fit in and you know get it right and I right. loved your work. But I did not count on the fact that as once again as we've told the story, Dusty Crockett had just bought Florida, and Dusty knew what was going on down there and he suggested Stan and I said well what the, what the fuck are we going to put a hit out on Steve Kern would you know bury him under the bridge what's he going to say about this no. Nah. Steve's getting out of the business, baby. He's going into real estate, and that's and that's how we yeah. got Stan. You know, I said okay, and Stan came up, and boom. But we, I so when I had to replace Bobby, I said, well, fuck it. Eventually, all these things come to pass, and 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 there we go. And as a matter of fact, the the team that Jerry Jarrett got me into the business to be a manager for was supposed to be Stan and Steve, the fabulous ones, when he switched them heel on Jackie Fargo. But since he never switched them heel on Jackie Fargo because they got over like God, 
I drifted aimlessly in obscurity until the Midnight Express, but I was supposed to have Stan and Steve, and then I ended up, five years later, I got Stan. But I wanted you, and then five years later, I got you. And then after that, it really didn't matter. Well, yeah, after that. (laughs) There was no after that. You're right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) pretty much, pretty much. We all just said, let's not do this anymore. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> but so it, what was it, it about? It. What was it about Doctor Tom that you, it was? You know, you always kind of wanted to have him under the uh, the Jim Cornette managerial tree. Well, it just he fit what we were doing at the time to make big money. Actually, because when when you think about who was available that could have replaced Dennis Condry in the Midnight Express, you need a guy who understands Southern wrestling, who's not too. Not too big, honestly, but not too small, and who looks good with Bobby, who uh, understands how to fucking heal and get baby faces over, and just and plus Doc's promos at the time I was a fan of, which, you know, maybe once in a while I might get a sore throat, and there you go. Uh, but it just, that style of wrestling and what we did as a team, it, you know, for example, they're great superstars in their own right, but you wouldn't team Bobby Eaton up with Road Warrior Animal. That'd look like a monkey fucking a football as a tag team. But even, you know, you have to fit the flavor of, of what you're presenting. And instead of taking the Midnight Express in a different direction, who knows what that might have been, we had to find somebody that understood that. Luckily, Stan had spent years in Memphis, had already had, you know, experience in a tag team had experience being a heel before he and and Kern were baby faces. So he he was and he looked good with Bobby. It was the same flavor. You know, you needed to follow the same pattern that, with what you were doing because elsewise it would have looked odd. It, you know, it was a it was a gamble to begin with to replace a, a top one member of a top tag team and go on at the same level. Well, yeah, I think it would have been tough real real quick just to uh, replace a guy like Dennis. Uh, but Yeah, and, the, and yeah. there you go. Yeah, but, yeah and I think I, I don't believe I was ready for that spot looking back in retrospect, and, and Stan pretty much fell right into place, and the optics of it all, yeah, pretty much fit. Well, I always like to say Stan made us look better for the pay-per-view era, but he was more cosmetically pleasing than Dennis and, yeah, and yeah. I, in, a, in a loving way. Right. But at the same time, Bobby and Dennis, when we were on top in Mid-South Wrestling, when we were on top early in Crockett, when it was still more territory wrestling and we were supposed to be the top heel team, Dennis was the best worker of all those guys. Dennis right. is a, was a better worker, a shocking statement here, than Bobby Eaton in a lot of ways, including his psychology and the way he led the team. And Dennis wasn't as flashy as Bobby and wasn't as as you know just demonstrative as everything bobby did was so visual but dennis was perfect in his own way and had a style that nobody else worked and emulated they couldn't it was just it was him yeah and he was always in the right place at the right time so you know it it, it that way when stan came along and was more show athletic in other words stan had that great leap and the you know the leapfrogs and the leaping over the top and the blah 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 and you know Dennis could not get away with doing that fucking dance. I'm sorry, that would not. Right. Have, yeah. So it it 
it was the same flavor, a style of team, but with two completely different individuals, so it didn't look like a copy. Now, when and you then, brought... to be honest, you know, you and Stan, um, the same flavor of team once again, but you weren't copying Bobby Eaton, because who can? You were doing your own shit, and, and you also added the dimension of you actually cut those fucking promos, which, you know, I, you... I'll never forget the best promo Bobby ever cut was working for Nick Goulas. The fucking heel had come in the previous week in Nashville. Bobby was a baby face, and the heel had fucked him by using a fucking, he had a broken arm, supposedly. He had the cast, right? He knocked Bobby out with the cast. And Bobby said, and so I think it was Gypsy Joe or whatever, Gypsy Joe came in last week, and he had a cast on. And he put his fist up in front of him, and he gestured from his wrist all the way down to his ankle. <laughs> well, <clears throat> yeah. Anyway, yeah. What was the question? Oh, I, I'm sorry. I was going to say that when you brought him in, in in Smoky Mountain, and you're putting together the Heavenly Bodies, was he the first person you thought of, or was Stan the first person you thought of? Well, no, Stan was the first person I thought. He was in the fucking Heavenly Bodies with Doc. No, but I mean, like when you were putting together the team, was that like the original thought? Like, okay. I got to, you know, I'm with Stan. Well, no, the the original thought was it was going to be the Midnight Express. We didn't think they'd renew Bobby. Because Stan and I left with six months. We left in uh, the end of, say, November 1st, and our contracts weren't up until May. And we knew the way they'd been fucking us that, you know, Bobby would be free. So the plan was it was going to be the Midnight Express. However,. And next May came, and Heard was, of course, ready to, you know, help Bobby carry his bags to the car. But every member of the creative team, Jr., who was the announcer, whoever they had in charge of creative at that time, and all of the road agents universally went to Heard and said, give this guy his goddamn contract. He's got kids and et cetera. And once that happened, then Dusty came in the next year. He's not going to re-sign Bobby Eaton. And then boom, boom, boom. And it actually turned out that Bobby became the WCW's longest continuously running employee from the time they bought the company until 2001. Because nobody could be the, except Jim Hurd, it could be the person that fired Bobby Eaton, the greatest wrestler in the world, right? So the nicest guy in the world. So when I didn't have the Midnight Express, I said, wait a minute, the last time I needed to replace a member of the Midnight Express, who'd I fucking want? Well, son of a bitch, wouldn't you know who won the pony? Dr. Tom's in Memphis. He's on the other end of the state. And and that's how that came to be. And because I mean, I was selfishly going to poach as many people as I, not I won't say as many, but right then in Memphis, which was not doing well at the time, was Tom Pritchard, the dirty white boy, Brian Lee, um, who else was there, Doc? Eric, Eric Embry was booking. Uh, you had Brian Christopher. You had the the normal guys, the regular crew in Memphis. I mean, it wasn't uh, – and we had been there for a while, too. So, Well, see, that was the thing. I, Brian Christopher yeah. wasn't going to come anywhere. I didn't want right. Eric Embry, to be quite honest with you. Right. Um, you know, but there was three – at least the three of you, and I thought I remember somebody else at one time, but anyway, that I said, right, you know, y'all have been there for a while. The territory's not doing that well. It's the other end of the state. You know, I, you know, hopefully can offer these guys a better option to come over here and start something new, and and that's what we try to do. And then, 
the rest of the first crew was was basically, you know, guys that I had seen over the previous couple of years that I thought, why is somebody not using these guys? And 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 the, we couldn't even get the Rock and Roll Express at first <clears throat> because Ricky was still under contract to WCW. Robert had his contract had ended at a different time because he'd had a knee injury and been out for a number of months. So we had Robert, which I love Robert Gibson, but as a single at that point, it was like, you know, does everybody remember fucking Stan Laurel's stunning singles career? No. Uh, You had to have the rock and roll, so I just put Robert on the card to wait until Ricky's contract was up. Because the way they were using him in Atlanta, I figured, fuck, they're not going to renew him, and wouldn't you know who won the pony? So it was a building period, and uh, there were, you know, uh, uh, the Fantastics, Bobby and Tommy, Bobby Fulton and Tommy Rogers were going to Japan uh, for Baba at that point still, but Tommy Rogers lived in Florida. And, fuck, I couldn't honestly fly him up every weekend, but Bobby's brother Jackie Fulton became the auxiliary fantastic and then took Tommy's place when he slowed his schedule down. So I got the new fantastics, things like that. It's interesting also the heavenly body name because, Dr. Tom, weren't you originally a heavenly body in Memphis with Pat Rose? Well, I was, yeah, but we weren't the original heavenly bodies, obviously. And that was <laughs> right, uh, right. the suggestion came from Bobby Fulton in Memphis, too. So, yeah, we've done that gig before. Well, so, yeah, and, and as cool. a matter of fact, remember, I came home for Christmas and came to the gardens to visit some of the boys when you and, and Pat Rose were the heavenly yes. bodies with Sherry. Yes. And said hello to everybody, and, and it, uh, who broke whose leg, like, the next week? I, I broke my ankle, yeah. Yeah, yeah. You, yeah was, who broke was, it, or how Stan. did you break it? Well, Stan, it was Pat and I against Stephen Stan in Louisville. And uh, Stan came over and knocked me off the apron, and I went down, and it was just the perfect thing where my ankle twisted, and I heard it crack, oh. and you could, you could see the people in the front row go, wow, that hurt. And I went, Wow. And then that was when I, brought, I taped it up for a week. And then the next week um, in Louisville, I was in one of those little dressing rooms. And Sherry came in. My foot had turned completely black. Dundee walked in first and said, you might want to have that looked at, mate. And then Sh- <laughs> Sherry came in and said uh, she was going to stop by the days in. We were staying at Nashville. Come and get me because her roommate, Tina, was a nurse at the hospital. She could get me right in. Wouldn't cost me anything. And uh, she did. She came back and got me that, that next morning. Uh, they x-rayed it. Sure enough, it was broke. They put me in a cast. They took me to her house. Or, and I stayed with them for two weeks. And in those two weeks, Tina gave me, uh, uh, I think, four pair of scrubs. And they cooked and took care of me. And then uh, my dad came down and helped drive the car back with a buddy of mine. And uh, the rest is history there. That was that was the end of the of the second set of heavenly bodies. <laughs> yes. Yeah, but yeah, John, to answer your question, it was an homage because the original heavenly bodies, Don and Al Green, were the furthest thing from heavenly bodies or good-looking <laughs> men. Yep. But that was part of the the patter of you know their manager, um, Sir Clements, would say the Mean Greens, the heavenly bodies. And they had an old publicity picture that we used at Night of the Legends when we had 
Don and Al there. They were, but they were the biggest heel team along with the Von Brauners in the Tennessee Territory for like 15 years. Just drew money with everybody from the 50s through the 70s. And so the Heavenly Bodies was a child. That's why that, uh, like, well, uh, Tom, like you said, Bobby Fulton suggested, because he was an old-fashioned, old-time wrestling fan. Well, then I couldn't do the Midnight Express now with Stan and Tom. I didn't want to do that. So I said, well, this is perfect, the Heavenly Bodies, and all the promos I could do about the Heavenly Bodies. And we made, you know, and the fucking outfits with the goddamn planets and the stars on them. Right. Of course, then, you know, they go to the WWF and the fucking twat creative service members gave them angel wings and told them to flap their arms on the way to the fucking ring. Remember that one, Doc? Oh, God. Yeah, I was trying to forget, but... Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. and actually, I've... Am I not the one that just took the fucking angel wings off the goddamn jackets they gave you? I believe it was. I think you. They, they were mine. Were snapped, and then I think Jimmy might have just torn his off. You one of one of the three of us did. I remember that. I Some, remember. Somehow or another, they accidentally yeah. got damaged. Yeah. It, it just it, it just weren't made up to snuff. But but anyway, yeah. John, that was the you know with the heavenly bodies, and it was just to play on words, to play on names. It was a Midnight Express, Heavenly Bodies, that kind of flavor of team, but different. With an homage to a legendary tag team from you know twenty or forty years before that. So, what did you think about the chemistry with Doctor Tom, Stan Lane, and yourself? Well, it it worked great from the start because once again, Tom and Stan both knew old-fashioned Southern style heel tag team wrestling, and you know Stan was it was not going to. Uh, how can I say this? At that at that point in his career, Stan was not going to break any new ground with his <laughs> right. with his daredevil athleticism. He was going to go for the shit that worked and be a good tag team partner. He wasn't trying to outshine anybody. But Doc had had honestly wanted, you know, uh, I think Doc, I don't want to speak for you, but you'd wanted a chance to fucking show what you could do in a situation like that on a more high-profile TV with people concentrating on you for a while, and you took it and ran with it. Yeah, it, it was an opportunity again, and I said this before, to sit under uh, you and Stan, whether we call it your learning tree or just your uh, – the individual personalities combined, I knew there could be some uh, uh, madness and insanity that I would really gravitate towards. So, uh, and, and it was. I mean, it was uh, – Stan, Stan was one of those guys that, that uh, to me, was easygoing, funny as hell, and uh, you know I had rode with he and him and Steve before, so I kind of knew Stan a little bit, and I I'd never seen him mad. He was always joking, always laughing, and I thought, well, this would be very uh, a, a very cool change of scenery, and it was an opportunity because you guys had already been uh, uh, in the mix. And regardless if it was Knoxville, Tennessee, or or somewhere in West Virginia, it was just an opportunity to uh, to learn what you guys had going on and cooking, and and that was that was a great thing for me. Well, and then the next time, I'll be honest, the next time we had to switch partners, I was I was caught with my pants down. Well, I think I was too. Well, every everybody went, everybody was pantless because. 
<laughs> that was what uh, uh, you know. We started. We did the first Smoky Mountain tapings in October of '91, but I didn't reveal my tag team until week eight of the television. So Stan and, and Doc didn't get together until like March of '92. But then about a year later, it's been a year. Stan calls me one day and says, "Corny, I'm quitting." What? I see you quit. I thought he was quitting the Smoky Mountain Raid. No, I'm quitting the business. He just got to that point where he didn't want to wrestle anymore. And and I said, Jesus Christ, I've just spent almost a year building you up as my top tag team. And he, so he's he's going to work out the next couple of months. But I had not been looking around for anybody to replace anybody in the heavenly body. So, but I, I really don't think there was a whole lot. To choose from there, there, there was time. there was no candidates yeah. for right. for the style honestly for what we had been doing and like I said the same style there were no candidates in in that genre but then we got the wild card because at that point um, Kevin Sullivan was coming up and making shots and he said I can't do the accent the Boston but Jimmy I know the guy. He's, he's here. He can take all the bumps. He does everything. It's Jimmy Backlund. I'm like, what? Because I'd remembered right. Jimmy Backlund in 1986 or whatever when he weighed 132 pounds. And I was what the fuck? But, you know, I trusting in Kevin and pretty much sight unseen. I said, all right, he's the new heavenly body. I said, thank God he's the same height as Stan. We can reuse the fucking robe. Right. right? The robe cost a fortune. <laughs> And Jimmy came up, and the one thing, you know, say what you will about being a heavily body, that may be part of the heat, that fucking buck-toothed, you know, and the the physique and et cetera. But Jimmy worked harder than anybody I've ever seen because he'd been in the business 10 years and never even got to win on television anywhere. He'd never had any kind of spot. And all of a sudden, he's, holy fuck. And I mean, you know, you had he would have jumped off the fucking roof if we'd have let him. Yeah. And then the, the but then the mind fuck on Jimmy that sent him down the road of no return really was that he started in May of '93 in Smoky Mountain, and June is when Bruce calls me, and July is when we start on Raw. So Jimmy Del Rey had never even won on television before May of 93, and in SummerSlam, he's challenging for the WWF Tag Team title on pay-per-view. So he that was too fast for him. I think, Doc, I think you'll agree. Yeah, I, you know, there were a lot of things. You're right. Jimmy came in, and I, again, have, have a distinctive personality sometimes, too, and, and he did, too. And we, you know, I... I I've said this before, we were just two different people. We would go out someplace and I, my MO was to uh, kind of lay low and, and, and scope out what's going on in the, in wherever we're at. And Jimmy's was <laughs> to come in guns blasting and say, here we are guys. All right. You know, I just wasn't, I, I, that wasn't my style. I, I kind of like a little more low key and I could be loud and proud and all that good stuff, but but you know, there was just other moments. But but you're right, Jimmy. When he got in the ring, uh, good gosh, man, he was he was he was a hard worker. He was enthusiastic, and he he was a good guy. He really was. He meant well. He just, I I think that's what it was. You know, coming up and all of a sudden, 
not listen, nothing not that I've been main eventing in Charlotte or anywhere else either. I was in Memphis. So I get Boimingham. It. it was one of my better towns, Boimingham. <laughs> right. But no, you know the, what I mean? the thing was part of part of the heat with Jimmy when he went to the WWF was this this fucking guy that nobody's ever heard of is going out there and doing shit that nobody else can fucking do. Right and and taking all these bumps, doing all these moves, and what the? Because you would look at Jimmy and go, "There's no way that he can do this shit," and then he'd do it. And yeah. I think you know. And then you guys and the Steiners, honestly, stole the show at SummerSlam that '93. Some may say that was petty theft, but you stole the show. Right. And I think that was part of the heat. Was these fucking guys come up from Tennessee and what the fuck? We can't do that shit. They just tore the house down with the Steiners. We're scared to get in the ring with them. And so you know, it was it was a, a abrupt departure for for Jimmy. But you know, the, that's it's it's also freaky that I've had two teams like that that I had to fucking the whole chain of things. I was supposed to have the Fabs, but I didn't get the Fabs. But later on, I got Stan when I had to make a change in my team. Well, later on, I got you who I originally wanted when I had to make another change in the team, and then I made another change in that team, and it still fucking worked. Right. Right. And I've said this before to Dr. Tom, and this might sound crazy. I actually thought Jimmy Del Rey and Dr. Tom were a better team than Dr. Tom and Stan. It's just the, the way they work in the ring, the chemistry, the tag team maneuvers. Am I well, crazy yeah. on that? Yeah, they were because, like I said, at, Stan was the name at that point off national TV that we were trying. So, oh, my gosh, these guys just sold out every fucking town in America, and now he's coming to your town. But Stan didn't have anything to prove. Jimmy had all kinds of shit to prove. And so he was going to go out there and try to steal the show. And so it, it did make for a better tag team because, you know, you Doc, you and Jimmy could start doing things that you guys would come up with rather than you trying to just work around what Stan was already doing. Right. So it kicked it up a notch. Yes, it did. <laughs> Both in and out of the ring, honestly. But, uh <laughs> Yeah, it was, it, it, there were fun times. There were fun times, yes. What was it like for both of you to be in Smoky Mountain and WWF kind of almost simultaneously as you're doing kind of double duty? Ooh. Well, I'll take that one first, son. Because, Please start. Uh, yeah, I will. Uh, but here's the deal, man. I uh, I knew from the beginning because I knew what we were doing in Smoky Mountain. I, was, I wasn't oblivious. I knew what, what the deal was, and I got it. And when we went to uh, – WCW to do the angle with rock and roll. You know, nobody really told us. I don't believe, I don't think you really sat us down, Jim, and said, hey, this is what, what the deal is. And we're looking to maybe trade talent with uh, uh, Atlanta. And Bill Watts is there now. And it's a, it's a, it's a friendly uh, face who, who, who would like to do business and help everybody out. I mean, nobody, nobody had to really explain that to us. It was pretty evident, I thought. Yeah, that's and, kind of what we yeah. were. We were the last uh, vestige of doing territory deals. That, that's the way territories would work together. That's what Watts did with Jared, blah, blah, blah. Right. So and we it, were it, doing that, and it just nobody was doing that anymore because there was no more territories. Right. And, and again, you and, you and Bill had a great relationship. You did great business together, so why not? It, just, it made perfect sense without anyone having to say, hey, this is what we're doing. But then – uh, you know, when, when, when my dad cut the promo and then all of a sudden they saw you and I knew, listen, again, you know, my spidey senses go off. I, I wasn't the sharpest knife in the drawer, but at the same time I knew, uh, 
<laughs> that you were uh, again in that top five of promo talking guy that they need. And we we were if we were doing great business and it was because of the heavenly bodies and the rock and roll, we would know it there. We but but I knew what we were doing too. We were doing okay, and and I was very happy. But as soon as we got the call, it wasn't about this great match you're going to have with the Heavenly Bodies versus the Steiners in Detroit at SummerSlam. I don't think that was the selling point. I, I, I knew from pretty much that first phone call that, that you were the guy they wanted, and I didn't know it was for Yoko, but it just made perfect sense. So, remember when we got there, John, our first day in Raw, right, with our surprise jerks on Raw, is an Alexander Bain in New York in this tin shed. Always have an old are you guys getting static there? Are you, are you breaking up, John, or can you hear that, or am it just me? Yep, a little bit of static. Okay, because I didn't hear a word. There you go. You're going to edit this thing, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yep. No, I missed Yeah, I missed that. Oh, good Lord. Wait go. a minute, I just... Hacked up some barbecue sauce from dinner. Hold on. <laughs> oh, I should know the acid reflux, but those Johnsonville bratwurst with barbecue sauce are so good. Hold on. Yes. <coughs> <coughs> yeah, I, I didn't get any. Tastes a little tomatoey so coming back. Very nice. But anyway, I'll start again. Um, let me know when you're ready, John. You are ready to go. Remember the first Raw we made was in Alexandria Bay, New York, and John, we pulled up, me and and, uh, Tom and Jimmy, in our rental car, and it's way up there in fucking upstate somewhere in New York, and Raw didn't always have a multi-million dollar budget, it was just this tin, giant tin building, I didn't think the parking lot was paved, I think it was gravel, and we're like, what the, you know, this is our first look at the WWF, right? But we go in and put our stuff down, and Bruce says, well, come on and meet Vince and Pat. Okay. And they take me into catering, and that's where they pitch me. Well, while you're here, would you right. mind? Would you mind? We want you to do some promos for Yokozuna because we're trying to put him in the match with Luger, blah, blah, blah. I was, All right, I'm here. I'm, you know, they're not going to pay me per promo. I'll do whatever the fuck you want. And that's how I became the American spokesperson for Yokozuna. I didn't even know until I walked in the building. Right. But but I had a clue. You had an inkling. Yes, I wish you'd have ankled me. Well, I th- I thought you were ankled already. <laughs> I know they <laughs> had never they had never ankled me until, uh, or yeah. ankled me either one until but but that's the thing. I think part of it was a trade-off also, because can you imagine how miserable I would have been if I just had to go up there by myself and fucking stand ringside for most of Yokozuna's matches? Because let's well, face it, he and Undertaker tore the house down. He was an amazing athlete, but they kept right. putting him with fucking Earthquake and with goddamn whoever in the fucking sumo match with no ropes, and oh my God, that was brutal. Yeah. But, uh, but that was, uh, John, to answer your question... That was, you know, the call from Vince after Watts had left WCW and Bischoff fucked us around with the deal. I said, all right, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. But I was having a nervous breakdown because even though at that time we'd only do TV and pay-per-view once a month, 
that would be four days counting flying up there. You do a pay-per-view, you do two days of TV taping and back, and I'd go straight to either post-production or writing the next TV or the weekends of house shows, blah, blah, blah. So I didn't sleep from 1992 to early 96. Quite a uh, crazy, crazy time, obviously, uh, for both of you, but especially for you kind of being in charge of Smoky Mountain and then kind of doing the, the WWF thing. Did you ever kind of think of like, all right, I got to get out of this uh, and get really focused on Smoky Mountain, or that wasn't an option? No, I, that's how I was paying for Smoky Mountain. I was paying for my wrestling <laughs> oh. hobby by working for Vince McMahon. Hmm. Makes sense. If, you know, uh, <laughs> there were, we hit a few tight spots. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Doc will remember a couple of them. We hit a few tight spots, so I was I was working for. It's, I know this is, sounds fucking assholeish, but everybody always says, "Oh, I got in wrestling to go to the WWF." I was working for the WWF specifically so I could afford to stay in Smoky Mountain Wrestling. That's great. That makes that does actually make great sense. Though. Get get the hell out of there. Use the money and uh, you know have your own uh, passion. Your own my, my my fucking goal in life when I got into wrestling business was not to go to Alexandria Bay, New York. Right, but you know, I, I think at that time too, it was I had attention to the guys who who had an inkling uh, that the times were changing, and, and it, it was obvious that I mean, great great idea, great uh, uh, great thought process, and going to, going to a place like Knoxville. See, because there's still wrestling fans here, and there's still old school who remember the Wright brothers, and even Whitey Caldwell to this day. I mean, not the young ones, obviously, but the people still remember. So um, I, I think it was just about maybe 10 or 15 years uh, too late. <laughs> you know. <laughs> well, actually, uh, it, when you think about it, it was more like 15 years too early. Or too early, yeah. Because think about this. It, I never intended to conquer the world. Everybody said, well, Smoky Mountain Wrestling, you never got a TV deal. Yes, we did. We got TV in Knoxville. We didn't get TV in Portland, Oregon, because we weren't going to run fucking Portland, Oregon. Right. But the idea, and we just we hit the, the only decade where it wouldn't have worked in some fashion or another. If we'd have been in the 80s, it would have worked as a territory. If we'd have been in the 2000s, it would have worked as a developmental territory. It was just in the 90s where... Vince lost his ass, and WCW couldn't draw what we were drawing in Knoxville. But my thought was, you're always going to have guys that can, the the old-timers, the veterans that can work the southern wrestling style, territory style, finishes, get people to come back, blah, blah, blah. The You're always going to have guys that want to, like the Chris Candidos and the Al Snows, and the Headbangers, and the Glenn Jacobs, and the guys that want to get experience. Yes, we were booking guys in White Silver Springs, West Virginia, in front of 150 people. Uh, the young guys could get experience, and the veterans were, you know, were making more money than they could make guaranteed in other places at that point in time where there were only two other places. And, but at the same time, those same guys might be in Knoxville in front of three or 4,000 people, which was great experience. Chris Candido gets to work with both the Funk brothers in his, you know, first full-time territory. Imagine that. Um, you could always bring in names, but with an alliance with a bigger promotion, which is what I'd rather done with Watts, to be honest with you, because it was more the same flavor of wrestling, not anything personal against Vince. 
But if you have access to talent, if you have a place for talent to go where they can make bigger money, they can become stars and then come back after they've become stars, hopefully, and work for you again, then that was doable. What wasn't doable for us was just the television and the airtime at that particular point in time. You know, we couldn't get, without incurring ridiculous expense, uh, two or three more big markets like a Charleston, West Virginia, or an Asheville, North Carolina. Um, but we couldn't keep running off the same three or four main TVs a full-time schedule to keep people busy. And even though now the the economics of wrestling have changed to where it's ridiculous to think that we were doing an hour of television with talent, post-production, everything out the door for less than $5,000. And that's with using a truck. Now they can shoot this shit on their phone. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you know, well, I, but but the, that's the point. Is we just it, it just it wasn't working at that point in time. But uh, the same thing worked in OVW tremendously. You know, ten years later, because the not only the economics but also the landscape had changed. And there's always room. If you have local television and a product that people halfway watch, then you can draw in that local market if you tailor it to that market or that region. It's just unfortunately to keep talent that's able to do that, you need to have an alliance now with a bigger promotion where you can either serve as a feeder system, training system, or a developmental system. Right, but but you had all your assistant bookers and your assistant people and all the people helping with all your assistants that you needed because I remember you had about five assistants and uh, oh, yeah, three, well, our creative, three assistant our bookers and your creative meetings. team. Yeah, <laughs> we had to move team. the creative meetings yes. to, the, to the boardroom at the Marriott. There was so yeah. many people. Yeah I, yeah, I held all those meetings in a fucking phone booth. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, it, well, it, there was a lot of... Uh, uh, pressure on you being a one-man show. So I mean, um, it, that I think that too. Just just the the atmosphere of uh, Smoky Mountain and uh, knowing that that it was a one-man show and one man's vision. You didn't have to listen to a bunch of different uh, uh, voices, and you could do what you want to do. And as you said, you had a mix of veterans and some young guys that came in. You had Candido, you had Tammy, you had uh, Brian Lee was just getting his feet wet trying to get seasoned. So. It was it was a unique place at a unique time, and um, it was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun. You know, we we were right in the middle there of those generations where, you know, Bob Armstrong and Terry Funk and Dory Funk Jr. were working on the same card as as Glenn Jacobs, Chris Candido, and Al Snow. It was right. it was it was cool, and then and then the rock and roll were in the middle. You know, right. the rock and roll were still some of the, you know, the young guys at that point. But it, it, so that's the way to me. And, well, Tom, you now run in a wrestling school, you know, um, and you've been training for, you know, umpteen years now. The way that guys learned was not by going out and working with people that were the same age, the same experience level, and the same, you know, same level as they are. It was the guy that's only been in the business two or three years getting a chance to get in the ring with a Terry Funk a couple of times. The veterans, you know, pulled the younger guys up, and then the younger guys became the top guys, and then they took the guys on underneath and started. You know, it was a steady process like that, and everybody was at a different level. We had some guys on the card that had been in the business 30 years and some guys that had been in the business 18 months. 
And it's so interesting with kind of the way it happens in WWF, just kind of going back to that, when you had Camp Cornette and you had, you know, Yokozuna and stuff going on, and you kind of left Dr. Tom as a body donna. I mean, I guess it's kind of unfair to Dr. Tom, don't you think? No, well, well, well yeah, that was, that was certainly was. my idea. Oh, yeah, yeah. I was, you know, I, again, that was one of those things that uh, – Looking back on a complete different time in my my life where I should have spoke up, but you know I was just I was beat I was beat down kicked kicked like a dog I it, it, nobody's fault but my own in that deal and 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 having learned from that uh, that's what I try to explain to the guys now coming up you have to have confidence you've got to believe in yourself and you have to speak up if you feel it is coming from the right place. It's always a place and a time when you do that, but um, I, I look back on a lot of things, and as I said, I'm cut from this cloth. I'm not, I can't change anything, but I, I sure would if I could, but I can tell the guys coming up now, uh, it, it's still the same. You've got to believe in yourself, and if you believe that strongly, and take Chris Jericho, for example, um, I think he tried uh, with trial and error, and but but more times than not, he went with his instinct and uh, came out on the positive side. So uh, the body Donna thing, I, ooh, that was that was a big rib on me. But but you know what, man? Well, I, but but you, I, you know what? Also, the die was just that Chris became a body body Donna first. That they couldn't see. Yeah, what they had in a guy like that, right? Right, and exactly. It, and it just had to be that same goofy, undercard bullshit like a T.L. Hopper and Freddie Joe Floyd. Well, here this guy looks like the exercise guy on on the infomercial. So the, the body yeah. donnas, they yeah. couldn't they couldn't come up with real people. Then the only time they ended up coming up with real people was when they had no choice because they were losing all their stars and they were losing the war and, and they were losing their minds and they just accidentally, you know, let Steve Austin be himself. Yeah. They had nothing else for him. After the ringmaster, when Ted left DiBiase, Vince just said, ah, if I could just let him be Steve Austin. Because it was like, I've given up. And that's when he, you know, and that's all of a sudden, then they wanted some more real people. Right. Right, but, and by and, that know, time, I think I was done. Yeah, I think yeah. I was pretty much out. Yeah, and and you know, Chris had uh, had moved on, and and you know, they they run through so much talent by pigeonholing people with these underneath gimmicks. Still to this day, you can see it. You know, sometimes a guy might, if you left him to his own devices, just presented him as a wrestler and let him get over on his own. He might, but when everybody has to have some ludicrous – remember when in, in that period of Duke the Dumpster Drossy, everybody had to have an occupation. Yes. It was like they weren't making enough money as wrestlers. One guy had to be a garbage man. There's a milkman. There's the fucking plumber. Hockey player. Goon. Hockey player. You know, everybody's got to have an occupation because they're just not making enough money working for Vince. I don't know what that fixation was, but – there's always got to be some manipulation of everybody's personality. I always like to just, who the fuck are you? All right, let's figure out something we can sell out of your ass. Well, and I, it, it used to be easier because guys I, were more interesting when they had yeah. to actually speak to each other yeah. instead of doing the text thing. Right, right. I was, I was just going to say uh, the personalities were a little more real. Terry Funk was a really 
uh, insane, crazy cowboy. And he, he he didn't play a part. He was the part, whether he was in public <laughs> or, or, or backstage sometimes. I mean, Terry had fun wherever he went. And that was part of the appeal to me watching those guys. I grew up on the Funks, and I grew up on the Wahoo McDaniel, Valentine, and, and Jose Lothario, and guys like that where, where they weren't playing a part or a character. They were who they were. They just turned it up when they got in the ring. But from the minute they walked in the building to, to the minute they were out um, <laughs> walking to the ring, uh, you be- I believed it, and a lot of other people believed it too because the guys walking to the ring believed it, and that's that's a big part of it. <clears throat> well, so it's you know, a huge part that's missing today. It reflects uh, in in – in the guys' presentation, as Jr. would say, these days, a lot of guys have personality, but it's it's manufactured person. It's it's like they're trying to be up and whatever, and they're reciting the lines that they're given and that they're told to say or whatever. And it, I used to I've I've told a story where I likened like Crockett's dressing room in 1986 or the Mid South locker room in 1984 to the the old Dick Van Dyke show episodes where they'd have everybody would over be, they'd have a party at the Petries, right? And they'd move all the furniture back and everybody would do their bits. Well, you've got Ric Flair and Dusty Rhodes and the Road Warriors and, and Tully Blanchard and Arn Anderson and J.J. Dillon and, you know, everybody in the locker room and there was no cell phones, there's no Wi Fi, and you either have to watch somebody putting his fucking boots on or tell stories. Yes. And so you had yes. to be pretty goddamn entertaining to hang with those crowds because that was some of the most unique personalities that you'll find walking around breathing. And everybody had stories, yes. And everybody had stories. So now, you know, so when you got on TV, you did, it, there wasn't a lot of difference between just, you know, you were selling your shit, but you were doing your shit you did in the fucking locker room. And everybody had some personality because they had to, you know, or there'd be browbeaten into submission by Arn Anderson. Um, so, you know, now the guys wait to be told what to say because if they do say something on their own, chances are they'll get yelled at. Hmm. And also, I walked into a locker room a couple of years ago <clears throat> for one of Jeff Jarrett's Global Force events. He had asked me to come down. He was in Bowling Green, Kentucky, and they were doing a thing with the DJ from the radio station. He had asked me to do it with him and set it up, blah, blah, blah. By walking in the locker room, all the young guys that are wrestling on the show, there's, there's 12, 14 guys in the locker room. And it's one of those big minor league ballparks, so it's a pretty good-sized locker room area. And every single one of them is either sitting on the floor, laying on the couch, or in some various form of reclining, not a single person speaking, and they're all looking at their phones, on their phones. And I found out later on one guy on one side of the room was texting the other guy on the other side of the room. <laughs> Yeah. I said, this is the most boring fucking locker room I've ever seen. You can't even tell whether it's a heel locker room or the babyface locker room anymore. They all just hop in together. I said, did, did, does any of you have a story about pussy or anything? And they just <laughs> all looked up at me from the phone. I walked out. The fans were more exciting. I went out and talked to them. Yeah, yeah. I'm finding that, too, everywhere I go. <laughs> God. It is a huge uh, disconnect. A lot of people, you know, this generation is definitely a disconnect. It's definitely different. 
Well, it's a different world. It really is a different world, and you don't have the same experiences that, that the guys uh, shared back then either. Again, you know, the Amarillo Territory had long trips. Smoky Mountain didn't have that long trips, but I still remember uh, having some great, great trips coming back. Uh, Brian Lee and I, uh, you know, racing the Harris boys, uh, coming back from wherever the hell we were coming back from here. And they, they threw something out the window. So here I go. I'm going to, I'm going to one up them, right? I, I pull up to them and I try to throw something out my window and I swerve real big. And we're going about 80 miles an hour. And I'm thinking, and, and then they look at me with their eyes got big. And said, whoa, 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 we stopped. We don't want anybody to get killed, man. Cause I'm, I'm not the best driver in the world either, but I'm trying now to, I'm trying to throw shit there at their, uh, uh, dash or, or windshield, and 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 I think they realized uh, somebody's going to get hurt here. But also, I mean, we we had the gra- grapple in the gravel. Tracy and I, uh, you, you know, coming back and and having just experiences that, that the guys. I don't know if they're experiencing stuff like that today or not. Uh, because you're right, they're all on their phones or playing video games, and it's a, it's a well, different but, world. But now, Doc, in all fairness, if we had even 25 percent, if they had 25 percent of the experiences we had, now with cell, cell phones, phones and yes. the internet, they'd all yes. be on the front page of the newspaper. That's why I'm glad we didn't have phones or any of that shit back then because we we don't need any of that there, you know. If there had been cell phones in the 80s, no wrestler would have been married longer than three weeks. Or, or he'd be, yeah, or he'd be in jail long. Well, I was longer. about to say if he yeah. was if he was if he wasn't in jail or, or yeah. know, sentenced to prison for something. Yeah. Well, but it was again a lot of fun. It was a little different, and 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 I was just mentioning somebody. Uh, God, last week about uh, even training or going through, going to some of these what they used to call sportatoriums or little arenas and uh, you know, you got dirt under your fingernails and you learned instead of going to the pristine, clean, sanitized rooms that you go to sometimes now. Uh, it, it well, I mean, did, did you hear that old Braun Strowman said that they shouldn't do GoFundMes for all the guys that lost their bookings? Well, they should. Did you hear it on Twitter? <laughs> Well, no. They, 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 actually, I think it was John Moxley set up a GoFundMe for guys that lost all their bookings because the world's coming to an end. Yeah. And Braun Strowman got on Twitter under his real name, of course, since he plays the character Braun Strowman on his action adventure series. I see. And said, "Well, I worked hard and got to where I am, but yeah, you got paid to go to school." For anybody right. That's Anybody that has only been in the WWF system, even though we have both been in it, so we, you know, we're not trying to malign anybody. Right. But you ain't been in the wrestling business if you have started and and to this day have never left the WWF system. And uh, there's a lot of guys that you know they announce these uh, these athletes they scout from other sports, whether they're big or whether they have this background or that background. They announce a lot of them, but then you'd never hear from them ever again because right. a lot of people in other sports may be great athletes, but they can't do this. Well, they find out they don't want to do this. Yeah, they don't that's, want that's to the do other this. Thing. Yeah, yeah. So, but anyway, I just uh, I, I he got all kinds of heat on himself, did Mister Strowman, yeah. uh, recently for doing that, but. He, you can't say that when you've basically been paid from the very start of your career to learn to do this to begin with. It's like, hey, I want to be a lawyer. Somebody give me two hundred grand so I go to law school. Right. And I think that, that the guys that want to get in the business 
and want to be wrestlers, not the do-it-yourselfers now. We got the do-it-yourself, you know, brigade now, where they they bypass going to school to do this, and just decide they can do it because they imitate what they see on television. That's like somebody coming off the playground and starting center for the Celtics because they've seen a lot of basketball. They don't know what any of the plays are or how to keep from running over everybody and killing them, but uh, but they can dribble and shoot. Well, I I have a kid like that now and it's it's been a challenge all the way but you know i ask everybody why in the world would you want to be a wrestler these days what is it that you see that makes you want to do this i i for the life of me don't know i mean i really don't if i was watching wwe and again it's not a knock it's just what what is it that would draw me in and i don't know that uh anything necessarily would draw me in you know, honest to God, I really don't. I mean, I, the oh, thing I'm, I'm me, right. I'm right yeah. here with you. I'm thinking, yeah. thank, thank God, I saw what I saw when I saw it, and I did what I did when I did it because now I wouldn't want to do it. Right, right. But yeah. but there's you know there's still the there's some guys that get it and kind of get what this is supposed to be. And I don't know if you're if you're an MJF fan, I'm not sure, but I love the guy. Uh yeah, very much so. He could have fit in at any point in time, and there's a few of those guys that understand you either need to be a beast or you need to be a prick or you need to be a hero or you need to be something, but you need to be real. You don't need to be playing a part. Use your real name on Twitter and take pictures of your mortal enemies and put them on Facebook You know, with your arms around each other. Um, those guys still generally find a way to excel in this business now because there's so much that's obviously contrived gaga, that when you see somebody that half-ass, you think, well, you know, <laughs> say what you want, but that guy probably is a prick or whatever. It stands out even more because nobody tries to actually be who they're purported to be. Well, I, I, again, I don't even know if they know uh, what they, they're supposed to be. You know, somebody's... Uh, who was it? A, a, a picture. Somebody had a picture up. Says it reminded him of. Uh, uh, he looked like Marlon Brando. Well, this guy wasn't even alive when Marlon Brando was was hot. You know what I mean? And how do you know what Marlon Brando looks like? How do you know Marlon Brando well, which, did? You saw the Godfather. Wait a minute. Which stage Marlon Brando? Marlon right. Brando, the the yeah, young, uh, you know, smoldery uh, actor, or Marlon Brando, the, the guy Godfather. looked like he'd been floating in the river for three days. Well, that's that's the point. You know, it's like uh, you don't know. Uh, unless you've had some uh, point of reference, unless you've either heard him, seen him, uh, know a little bit about his life or, or purported life, however they however they make it sound. I mean, um, yeah, I, I believe in authenticity too, and I don't know that there's that many authentic guys out there. And again, just with the exception of a guy like Lesnar, who who is what he is, um, no matter where he goes, he's he's that guy. He's the guy that you have doubts about. You, you know, he's the guy that, that uh, you think he's a prick. He is a prick. So, uh, and, and here's, here's another thing you think, you know, I know all this stuff is is all staged, but that guy may just every once in a while decide to do whatever the fuck he wants to do. Right. That's what gets over. It's, right. It's the, it, and there's never been a point in time in wrestling where the people sitting in the stands were more confident that when they see a guy come down the aisle or the ramp, he's been told what his name is, he's been told what to say, he's been told what he's going to do, and he's been told what to wear. 
And that's the antithesis of everything that gets a professional wrestler over with people. But every once in a while, somebody comes down the ramp, and you think, well, I don't care what they tell this fucking guy. He looks like he's going to do what he wants or say what he wants. That's what gets over. Of course, you can't have, you know, a goddamn idiot that looks like a, you know, a drop of jelly has been flobbed off the toast onto the fucking carpet doing that. You can't just have every Tom, Dick, and Harry out of control or elsewise you then have... If everybody's out of control, then nobody's out of control because it's right. all just a mess. Like if you've got 12 seven-foot guys, you've got no giants. Right. But, you you know, for guys who can carry that off, that's what gets people over. That's the same thing we got Steve Austin over. It's the same thing we got the Sheik over. It's the same thing he gets Brock Lesnar over now. Yeah. It never changes. Now, Mr. Cornette, I know you're not a night owl like uh, me and Dr. Tom are. So, yeah, uh, why are you recording this at 2 o'clock in the morning, John? You staying <laughs> ahead of the law or something? Yeah. I, I just want to make sure that we get in all your plugs before we kind of we let you go. Uh, obviously, your podcast, your website, everything you got going on in the world of James. I, I have two wildly popular podcasts that are listened to by way too many people each and every week. Uh, the Jim Cornette Experience that comes out Fridays whenever we can hit the deadline, and – Cornette's drive-through that comes out on Mondays, and I'm not even going to do a shameless plug. If you go to jimcornette.com, you can get every kind of classic wrestling entertainment, DVD, book, whatever that you need in order to pass your time, your lonely time, while we're all cooped up in solitary. And as I mentioned, my personal schedule has not changed. I go to the post office twice a week to ship my shit, and I ship as (laughs) swiftly as shit can be shipped. But I think it's it's a calculated risk. It's a mile away. I don't even have to go through a red light. I wear gloves. I go. There's nobody going in there now. They're all scared to die. I have a young, healthy, vibrant clerk that I deal with from a distance of six feet, and I ship everything to the to the customers. JimCornette.com. Get it while it's hot. As long as they don't close the post office, I'm shipping. Standing. Otherwise than that, John, I'm doing fuck all or nothing. How about you? Yeah, pretty pretty much. So we, you know, obviously you guys both hopefully will be at the gathering in August uh, if if it all goes. Well, down. It, yeah, if the ban is lifted by then. I mean, we just had to uh, the governor of Tennessee uh, just declared all gyms and uh, eating establishments uh, to be suspended. So, what do you mean? Just now they closed all our just, restaurants a week ago. Yeah, well, Tennessee's a little little behind, so it was today. Yeah, and uh, <laughs> so JPWA is now uh, closed until further notice, and uh, uh, hopefully by August this, this uh, whole thing will be lifted. Yes, if if there if there is a gathering in Charlotte, we will be gathered amongst them. Yes, very nice. And, and 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 Doc, well, I just want to say another set. thank you for having me on the show. I've always well, known the 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 brand of cloth that you are cut from. It's it's canvas that was taken out of a straight jacket, but it's it's a wonderful <laughs> cloth. Perfect. And it's the kind of suit I'd like to have on on any occasion. Well, I appreciate, it, and I thank you for coming on the show as well. And I've said this before: I have nothing but respect, love, and admiration for you, and I appreciate the opportunities through the years that you've given me. And uh, uh, I haven't always been uh, walking the straight and narrow path, but today. Oh, come on! Wait a minute now. Every... Oh, no, no, wait a minute now. Let me ask you a question: Did you ever? <laughs> Good point. Did you? Did you uh, ever? I, such I, as I was such as was done by. 
by Jimmy Del Rey and, and Wildfire Tommy Ridge. Did you ever break down on the way to Freedom Hall in Johnson City, coincidentally well, I, right in front of an O'Charlie's at happy hour? I, I happen to have a beer for a three three for one. Well, maybe yeah. once or twice. Yeah, yeah. That, I think we did. You, I, I think you it was walked the last, a much straighter think, line than most of my disciples. Very nice. I just I remember the last show we had when we we were a little late too, and we 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 told you some wild tale as well. But but it was a lot of fun over the years, and I appreciate you coming on tonight, especially because. Uh, as a matter of fact, John, do you know that that Dr. Tom one time was was late to a Smoky Mountain wrestling event because he passed by a home for unwed mothers that he saw was going out of business so on his own time and his own effort he supplied him with some more unwed mothers <laughs> it was nice. it was True. so charitable on you know, doc True i love story. you and always have i knew i'd get you sooner or later and i did very nice well i appreciate being got and uh, thank you for being had well i appreciate you having me i've enjoyed being had there you go from outstanding thank do you do they do they get your program in cleveland well they hear it but i'm not sure they get it so Ah, very nice. <laughs> very nice. <laughs> All right, Mr. Cornett. Well, thank you very much. You have yourself a great night. Appreciate you coming on. Thanks, guys. I will do it again anytime. Adios. Thank you, Adios. Jim. Bye-bye. See you. Bye. And we are still here with uh, Dr. Tom as we kind of wind it down and head towards the finish. Of course, JPWA is still available on Patreon. They have a lot of stuff set up. Maybe even more important than ever right now is JPWA, the actual uh, gym, the actual training school is closed uh, for the government. Also, ProWrestlingTees.com, you can pick up a JPWA shirt or a Dr. Tom shirt. So now would be a great time to support that. JPWA, excuse me, JP. WrestlingAcademy.com is the website. On Twitter, at Dr. Tom Pritchard, I am at Two Man Power Trip. Anything else you'd like to uh, mention there, Dr. Tim? Because I know it's personal appearances will be uh, on hold for a while. Yeah, it's, it's, it's really, really kind of a crazy time for everybody. Uh, all these uh, uh, shows and, and appearances being canceled. And, um, I, you know, it's uncharted water, obviously. Uh, for everybody in the country today, so everybody in the world has never, uh, well, since I've been alive, I've never seen anything like this. So uh, we'll make it out. We'll, we'll all make it out together and uh, see what's on the other side. But uh, in the meantime, we're just going to be as safe as we can and uh, stay six feet apart from anybody we come in contact. You know, it's kind of like I wouldn't touch her with a 10-foot pole. Well, <laughs> there you go. I won't touch anybody with a 10-foot pole. So. But uh, that's about it. Until further notice, uh, we are suspending all our activities at the JPWA. And as soon as we get the okay to open up, we will. And you'll hear it uh, hopefully not first here, but we're going to make sure our social media gets it. And we'll we'll certainly talk about it here, I hope, when, when we do come back. All right. Awesome stuff. And, of course, thank you to everyone listening to us. And come back next week for another episode of Taking You to School with Dr. Tom Pritchard. See you next week, folks. Thanks for listening to the two-man power trip of wrestling, What the World is Downloading.